First of all, I want to thank churches together in Rome, and particularly Reverend Ken Howcroft, for inviting me to preach at this service of Christian unity. Inviting a layperson to preach is a strong reminder to us all. We are all called to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. As the Apostle Paul once wrote, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I recently came upon a book with a rather intriguing title. The title is Eat the Frog, 21 Great Ways to Stop Procrastinating and Get More Done in Less Time. A very strange title for a book. Eat the Frog. I learned last evening, actually, that it's the title, the word, eat, the words eat the frog is actually a Hebrew expression. And it means do the most difficult thing first. Do the most difficult thing first. Because often what happens is this. The things that are most important are the most difficult. And so we tend to put them off. Anyway, underlying the thesis of this book are three simple points. The first, discover what you are passionate about. Second, focus on what is most important. And third, dedicate your time and energy to that. When I look at the Apostle Paul's life, what he was most passionate about was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Personal experience taught Paul of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the call to share in his suffering by becoming like him in his death. Paul was passionate about Jesus Christ and his power to bring salvation to the world. Paul's frog, if you will, was how to communicate that gospel to churches that were often difficult, divided, and downright pig-headed. The church in Corinth proved to be a particular challenge. In his first letter to those confused Corinthians, he tries to convince them of the power of the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus Christ, to transform their lives and to lead them into unity with one another. Paul 
dedicated all of his time and energy to communicating that message. And one tactic that he used was to focus on death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection and their death and resurrection. His message to the Corinthians makes us think about our death and hope in resurrection. And this brings me to the theme chosen by our Polish brothers and sisters for the week of prayer for Christian unity. It's taken from 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. I don't know about you, but I find myself humming Handel's Messiah when I come to this passage. I won't sing it to you. Maybe it's better to go home and listen to it on YouTube. But I think Handel captures something of the dramatic and decisive implications of Christ's resurrection in our lives. When Paul speaks of the power of Jesus' resurrection to transform us, he's not talking about a little tweak. We can have a sure hope in Jesus' final victory over death. Jesus' promise to us is nothing less than imperishability and immortality. And Paul reminds us that this radical change hinges on something that has already happened for Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is truly risen and our lives are hidden in his. What implication does this have on how we live now? Everything. Everything. If we let the full weight of the good news penetrate our hearts. Paul reminds the Corinthian community and us that the power of Jesus' death and resurrection is an invitation to transformation living right now. So what does this mean in the context of the week of prayer for Christian unity? First, I think we're invited to ask the questions, what are we passionate about? Have we fully embraced the power of Jesus' death and resurrection and allowed it to penetrate our daily lives? Are we really passionate about that unity for which he so ardently prayed? And second, what is our frog? What are we procrastinating about when it comes to promoting Christian unity? What do we find most difficult 
Could it be our fear of change, our fear of transformation, our fear of entering fully into that new life that Jesus wants to give us? One time, a journalist asked Mother Teresa of Calcutta, what's the first thing in the church that needs to be changed? What's the first thing in the church that needs to be changed? And her reply was, you and me. (laughs) Paradoxically, We know from experience, to quote John Henry Newman, that we can't change ourselves. This we know full well, or at least a very little experience will teach us. God alone can change us. And yet, as Newman says, to live is to change, to be perfect is to change often. And so in a way, transformation is both gift and responsibility. So what can we do then to embrace the transformation that will lead to full visible unity? I think the readings we heard today give us two hints. First, we are called to trust in the power of Jesus' death and resurrection to transform us and to lead us into that full Christian unity to which we are called. We may not see instant results, but because we have faith in the risen Lord, we will trust in his power to do all things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us that nothing is impossible for God. And second, we're called to commit ourselves to action, to make our work for promoting Christian unity the highest priority, and to do something each day through prayer and action to promote unity. You know, the big danger of the week of prayer for Christian unity is the week of prayer for Christian unity. (laughs) Once it's over, life goes back as it was before. Paul encourages us to keep at it. Not only this week, but all year long, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling, in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I personally have been helped on this path of trust and action through meditating on John Wesley's covenant prayer. I've kept a copy of it on my desk for more than 25 years. And in the Methodist Church, I realized that this prayer is used on special occasions where after a period of deep reflection and prayer and sometimes fasting, the congregation 
joins together to solemnly proclaim it. I mentioned the covenant prayer today because I think it contains a key for understanding the sort of transformation that we're called to live here and now, and that will lead to that full, visible unity to which we all strive. You know, John Wesley's covenant prayer is like a love poem. It's not just a one-to-one transaction between individuals and God, but the act of the whole faith community. And so I conclude today with it as a reminder, as an invitation to let go of fear. Above all, to let go of the fear of change and to let the power of Jesus' death and resurrection effect that change in your life and in mine, in your church and in mine, that we can together embrace the full unity in Jesus Christ to which we are called. And so, in the words of John Wesley, the covenant prayer, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.